Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Amazon has developed a unique culture that allows them to uh, bring new products to market with a speed and level of execution that most companies uh, wish they could have. My guest today is Chris Durbin, and as a product designer for Amazon, she's seen firsthand what makes Amazon's approach unique. In this episode, we discuss what she's learned leading the design for the Apple Watch app, why Amazon's culture of writing is the key to its success, and why Amazon believes the phrase minimum viable product should be outlawed. With that, let's start talking to Chris. Chris, thank you for joining uh, me for this. Uh, why don't we start with just, you know, you, you've done quite a few things, I think, sort of in your career. But when someone uh, comes up to you today, you know, at a networking event or a party or something like that and asks you to sort of talk about what you do, what do you say? I love this question because, it, you know, it always just depends on the audience there. I keep it simple and say, well, I like to make stuff at Amazon and then I watch people use the stuff that I make and then I go back and make it better. And then depending on if they're from the games industry or if they're from the tech industry or if they're just outside of the bubble, they'll usually ask and say, well, what are you talking about? And then yeah. I give them this feel. It's like, well, I'm a UX designer. I do research. I observe people watching things that I make. I make prototypes. And then when I tell them it's Twitch Prime, if they've heard of Twitch, they're like, oh, man, gaming is so awesome. And then we usually <laughs> devolve into a conversation about you know, Overwatch or something. <laughs> So you started, I guess you're mostly known for the user experience side, but it's obviously, yeah, it's evolved quite a bit over the years. You know, I think when we when we first met, it was about like websites and things like that. And then mobile sort of took over the world. And that's, you know, it's still sort of the case, but it seems like it's becoming sort of almost device agnostic. And, and, it, and for you guys at Amazon in particular, I would imagine that that's 100% the case. How do you, as a user experience professional, try to navigate that and you know, wrap your head around optimizing for every different sort of form factor and, you know, all, all of those sorts of things? Uh, that's a big question. So the way that I try to keep up with it is uh, at Amazon, there are a ton of internal talks and events uh, and just opportunities to immerse yourself in another team's world. Mm -hmm. And anytime you approach design, especially on the team that I'm on, which is uh, basically a prime team, it's global, it's worldwide, you always have to be thinking, I'm building this right now for my audience today, but in one to two years, this will have to scale. And scaling at Amazon now means also on Alexa devices. So mm -hmm. when I still start mobile first, and then just from a process perspective, I think about, okay, if someone has a phone, an Android phone that's a couple of years old, how are they going to use it? And then from there is like where I build the experience. But eventually, you have to have an experience that's so distilled that you ask yourself, okay, if someone is using an Echo device and they want to use my product, what are the prompts and things that they will say and expect to hear back from this experience? So you have to really be crisp in what you want the person to do and how you keep them moving through the flow so that they stay on that happy path and then don't deviate. Does that lead to simpler sort of interfaces kind of as a result in terms of removing kind of anything extraneous or do you have a full featured product and then you're as you're as you're working on that you're identifying oh this might be a use case for a voice interface how do you think through those kinds of decisions as you're working on it so what i like to do is one start with the customer and work backwards and i try to design as robust a system as possible meaning i go through every use case every possible use case and then i leave it up to either the pm or the developer to come back and say okay, either we can't do this or 
I'm glad you thought about this, but we're not going to do this right now. And then it's kind of this organic push and pull of here's the ideal experience. So there's this concept of, you know, an MVP, a minimum viable product. Yep. And it's a bad word around here. If anyone says, if, if a team comes to you and says, hey, we have an MVP and we want to show it to you, uh, it, it's kind of frowned upon. And we say, all right, go back and work on it because we don't, we can't ship something that's just viable anymore yeah. because the landscape is so competitive. We say MRP or minimum remarkable product it has to be memorable. It has to be lovable because you have to just everything that everyone is trying to do right now is they're trying to be make it easy to use. Like Steve Krug said, you know, don't make me think. Those are the table stakes at this point. Whereas before when we met and it was just kind of websites, everyone was just kind of yeah. figuring it yeah. out. And it's just like, all right, let's work really hard to make this really easy and really obvious to use. And so now it's like, okay, now let's work really hard to make this memorable and make it something that a customer will, if you're gonna associate it with Amazon, they, you, you think of you know customer experience mm -hmm. and people are like I love Amazon when you put the Amazon logo in front of them even just the logo their mood and their emotions instantly shift to one of oh I love Amazon I am a prime member and then they go on and they tell you all these stories so you have to bottle that up and remember that when you're approaching your product here and from a design perspective it's my job to push the PM and the engineer to build the best thing possible and then let them say, okay, now let's prioritize. We know what parts of this will make this stand out. Now let's figure out how we phase this out and how we build it. If you were giving advice to a team that didn't have the resources of an Amazon or but, but wanted to hold themselves to the same standard around not just viable, but remarkable. Are there things that you sort of keep in mind as you're, as you're creating stuff, principles or patterns or anything like that, that kind of, help you know this qualifies as remarkable and not just simply viable or how, how do you how do you make that determination it honestly starts with your vision and it starts with your vision statement so before you think about okay what tech is this going to be on what device is this going to be on or not going to be on boiling it down to a very simple straightforward statement and that is actually the hardest work of all so at amazon before you can get any traction behind an idea you have to be able to codify what you want to do for the customer in a one-page document. And then from there, if it's got legs, then that grows into a six-page document, which kind of goes more into the implementation, how it might work, what are the teams and the resources that you would need. And then, again, you're still distilling and working on your original vision statement. At the same time, you're kind of figuring out, okay, how will this work? And you have to be willing to change your vision statement based on what you learn in that process. If you never change your vision statement, then you're not really doing any work. You're just pushing your same vision forward. When I worked in the concept lab, we had templated kind of starting place for for areas we wanted to explore. And so it was yeah, five really, yeah. really basic questions, like who is the customer? If you don't know who you're building for and who you're not building for, the vision statement is gonna be way too broad. And it's mm -hmm. not gonna help you make hard decisions when there are two right answers. Um, what is the customer problem? You need to be able to prioritize, okay, this is the person that I want to make a thing for, and this is the first thing that I'm going to help them solve in their life. There might be you know, pl plenty of other, other secondary and tertiary problems that they have that you're trying to solve, but you just have to focus on one when you start, and especially when you're thinking about that vision statement. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is, is the most important customer benefit clear? 
Uh, a lot of times when you are in a space that's really crowded, you're kind of all trying to solve the same things. There's a lot of other teams working on the same things. And someone will tell you, you know, there are five really important customer benefits here. And you have to do the work and make the hard decisions of, no, just pick the one most important one. Um, beyond that, how do you know what customers need or want? So you have to have done your research or have some data, have some signals so that it's, you know, it's not just a flash in the pan. And then ultimately, what does the experience look like? When you're starting out, just because people are very, very visual, and when we worked in the concept lab, we, we started with prototyping first. Answering what the experience looks like does not mean that it's, it can't change or that it won't change. It actually should change. Um, and it, doesn't, it also doesn't mean just go and make sketches and then come back and show it to me. It's as I interact with your product over the life cycle, what is gonna change? So when I am brand new and when I'm onboarding, how do you talk to me? What's the messaging? Okay, so now I've been a customer for three months. That's a lot different than being a customer on day one. Right. What are the things that you're doing for me at this mark? Okay, now it's one year. Now it's five years. How do I walk through those things from a business perspective, a product perspective, experience, all of that? Just have a sense of how you feel this customer is gonna experience um, your vision, basically. And, yeah. and were, the, were those prototypes being created at the same time as you're fleshing out that document, or did you need to have that six-pager down first? Because like you were saying, I mean, people's eyes often light up when you get something in front of them. Uh, it honestly depends on the team, and it also depended on what I saw was the tenure of the team in Amazon. Much newer teams, uh, if you show them something shiny, and they love it, and they'll go right for it. Someone yeah. who's a lot more tenured at Amazon are going to ask uh, – a very Amazonian question that you'll find in a six-page document under the FAQs is, what are the dogs not barking? And so that's basically, you've told me all of the great things about this product, but I know that, okay, what are the risks to this business? If things don't go as planned, what is your contingency plan? Like, what are the things that I need to know of that aren't necessarily going to show up in the very first stages of this product as we're deciding how we're going to fund this, how we're going to build this, who's going to work on this. So the press release and the, you know, the FAQ document are, are kind of the things that maybe Amazon is sort of most famous for in terms of their product development process. But, you know, I just know from previous conversations, you, you know, that you guys have a pretty unique culture in general in terms of how you execute and all those kinds of things. What, what other aspects of the process would you say are sort of unique relative to maybe what you've seen um, inside of kind of other organizations or through networking or, or whatever? What, what, what sort of makes Amazon Amazon? There's not a fear of if we don't get this, we're done. It's more of we know that this is really hard work to do and we know it's not going to be right. We just want you to push everything as far as you can and know that if this whole thing blows up, it's not going to reflect badly on you. I'm um, going back to the vision statement. So for Kindle, my favorite, favorite vision statement uh, is was for the original Kindle. Uh, it's every book ever printed in any language, all available in less than 60 seconds. At the time, like that is huge. Yeah. And yeah. there is no, no sane person is like, oh yeah, we're just going to hurry up and do this project. And there, there are these dates and these commitments and we're just gonna, we're just gonna go. That is a massive vision statement, but it's also very specific in that, okay, we're gonna be focused on books and print is really, really important. And I mean, if anyone, I mean, if, if you used a Kindle, um, the yeah. fact that it's like e-ink. I mean, that has something to do with how the product was made. Um, and then being able to scale globally, any language, all available in less than 60 seconds. 
And so that's sort of like a technology vision where we just want to be able to deliver things to people, whether they're physical or digital. One of the things I know you did while you were in the concept lab was the was the Apple Watch app. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what that process was like? You know, obviously it's a very different kind yeah. of form factor and there's some interrelatedness between that device and my phone and all that kind of stuff. Like what were some of the things you learned kind of going through that process? Oh man, that process, the timing of that process. So imagine if you can before the time before everyone had a watch or knew what a watch was when I joined that project, that's the time period that it was, I think it was 2014 or 2013, somewhere around there. Um, we didn't even know if people would care that they could use the app on their watch. We didn't even know if watches were going to last in the market. They're sort of going through, there's this Gartner's hype cycle for emerging technologies where it's like, you can kind of track new technology through the innovation trigger. Oh, there's this new tech. Uh, And people get all these inflated expectations. They think it's going to be awesome. And then you go down, as people realize, okay, this isn't meeting my expectations, you go slump through like the trough of disillusionment. Blockchain. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So we were like, okay, where on the hype cycle do we think this is? But again, this being Amazon, it's like, you know what, who cares if this device doesn't go anywhere? If it does, we want to make that bet and bet on this device. And if we lose the bet, that's fine. That's okay. We'll be, we're only going to invest two to three years in this and see where it goes and then revisit at that time. Some things I learned was function driven design being as concise as possible while trying to make an experience make sense on the watch. So at Amazon, you can buy millions of products. You can buy an Xbox on the watch. You could buy a bicycle on the watch. You could buy a chair on the watch. Are people going to use these things? What's the catalog that we're going to even put on this device? And so from an experience perspective, when we started, uh, I started on the early research phases, we went out to customers' homes and showed them storyboards. And to kind of figure out how do customers envision using this device, which is in their lives. We, we did research with some early adopters and then also for customers who don't have a watch in their lives or aren't imagining using a watch. If we put storyboards in front of them and have them react, what are they going to say? And that gave us our early signals for, okay, this is how people imagine using this thing. And the way that I worked was I did tons of storyboard sketches for different user stories that we imagined might be successful. So let's say you go into a grocery store and you have a list and you just want to know where in that store your items are. So I made a storyboard for that scenario. There's also for when you are at home or you're in the car and you need to do a task, what what types of tasks would people maybe want to do? And would, we tested both uh, shopping and non-shopping related tasks just to see what people's responses were. You know, because Amazon is so massive. Anything that we learned, we wanted to make sure other teams could also learn from it. And so that's where we started. And that's how we decided on our initial set of use cases, our initial catalog. And then from the design process from there is actually very simple because Apple does a very good job with all their documentation. It was just grabbing all the sketch files and doing all the flows, doing all the edge cases, and then lots of revisions on the copy because most of that experience is, is just text. Yeah, yeah. I bet that was good practice for now, you know, as we've been making this transition to these voice interfaces, I would imagine that that was a you know very good practice in terms of conciseness and copy. And um, obviously the feedback loop is a little bit different, but if, if you were, if you, if you decided in some alternative universe that you were going to go work for 
a company that maybe doesn't quite have the reputation for innovation that Amazon does, if they were standing up something similar to like a concept lab or just in general, you were sort of tasked with trying to kind of make, help them make things happen in a way that they haven't been able to, how would you, how would you try to go about doing that? Like, what would you take from what you've learned there and try to help, help an organization kind of move a little bit faster and be, even if it was like 5% more Amazon like, uh, <laughs> you know, how, how would you, how would you do that? Where to start? I, I would say definitely with uh, writing more documents. So when I joined Amazon, I had never written a document like what they've asked of us. You know, I've been here for four years, so it's like now a document is like second nature where I start. But just the amount of crap that you can cut through when you don't have to, I don't have to wait for a design, another design team or a tech team. I can just write my idea down, distill it, pass it around, share it with other teams and hone my idea and then also hone my design arguments for why I think these things need to exist or in, in some cases not exist. That's exactly, that's what I would take from this culture is, and then also the culture of giving candid feedback in a way that's constructive and direct. And, you know, sometimes you'll get a PDF and you'll look through it and not really want to engage or give feedback or even look at it. Whereas at Amazon, it's like if someone is reaching out to you, it's it's kind of your due diligence to say, hey, here are all the holes that I see in this argument that you have. I think there is or isn't potential here. Go talk to this person and try to, you know, fill the gaps. That's also like an amazing part of this culture where it's, I don't have to wait until my idea is refined enough to share. I can share a very, very unrefined idea and know that I can share it with my inner circle and they'll fill the gaps. And the more people that I share it with, the more quickly I'll be able to rewrite my document again and again and again and, and get it really crisp and yeah. then ready for the next phase. That's interesting. You know, the uh, lean startup and using, you know, the MVP thing. I mean, one of the things that, that he talks about is that an MVP is often a lot more minimal than you think. And yeah. he talks about how it doesn't have to be, it doesn't mean shippable code. I mean, it seems like these documents are almost, you know, if you're, if the principles are around kind of getting something in the hands of stakeholders as quickly and as cheaply as possible and being able to iterate it as quickly as cheaply as possible, iterating inside of a text document is obviously way faster than even than creating screens or anything like that. That's really neat. So uh, now, now you're at now you're at Twitch. What do you what do you uh, talk a little bit more about? Um, you, you mentioned you're kind of on the on the, the prime side. Like what are you what are you doing for them? In the last eight months, I've done a couple projects here and there, but I've mostly been uh, studying what makes gamers different as an audience. Uh, part of the reason I wanted to come to this industry is because m me myself as a gamer, I don't understand what what is the thing that sets gamers apart? And the more that I've been doing this research, it's, oh, okay, so gamers are exactly like normal people and games are sort of like the movie industry. And so when we approach them from a, serv a prime service perspective, what are their expectations? Um, how can we make things a little bit more modern? Because I feel like Amazon's still, we're so big, it's so hard to make an experience very quickly um, that's modern here because we're, we have so many other services we're hooking into, so many other teams. Like It's just faster to use an older service than something that's modern. What I want to do is make, I'm calling it right now gameful design, which is different than gamification. And I'm, I'm in the text, uh, in the document writing phase where I'm, I'm figuring out, okay, we're not going to call our audience customers. At Amazon, we always say customers instead of users. I was like, we're not building for customers. We're not building for users. We're not building for core gamers. We're building for people who are players. And I think the word play is at the core of this kind of design framework. 
Uh, and I'm working on a small team right now with just three other developers who are all pretty senior. They've kind of they kind of know the Twitch framework, uh, the Twitch tech stack, and they know the Amazon tech stack. So between the four of us, um, oh, that's another thing about Amazon is the small team size. Between the four of us, we're able to throw stuff up on the board, make decisions, and get this document kind of solidified. And at, as I'm building this frame, the design framework and how the front end might look, work, feel, what's our narrative going to be for our brand, they're figuring out, okay, how do we make a tech stack kind of in between these two worlds that's going to scale three to five years out in the future? It's a departure for sure from function over form yeah. uh, because the thing is with games, it, games reward kind of free-spirited exploration. So I'm I am using this product with no task in mind. I mean, that's that's got unheard of. I need a user story. If you're using this product, you have a task. You have a thing you want to do. And this is saying... No, maybe they don't. What if what if we made something and we invested in it and there's no there's no outcome at the end other than they just liked clicking that button. Maybe they just liked doing this thing and yeah. there's no no end goal to it. The whole esports world has kind of blown up. Um and yeah. I would imagine that maybe not everybody that's listening to this, but I think a lot of people that are listening to this probably still are confused a little bit about what why that's exploded so much. Um, how how would you describe it to somebody that maybe doesn't know about it? They maybe they're familiar with video games and they played video games growing up or something like that, but they're the world has hardened to them or whatever. <laughs> what, what what is it that makes it what is it that makes it so compelling um, about you know sort of watching other people play games? What what uh, what do you think is uh, driving such the, the, the such rapid growth? Uh, well, I think it's just the the age of our population and just the age of um, technology as well, and the 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 maturity of the gaming industry is what is driving this. So, if you talk to anyone, you'll say, "Hey, have you ever played football as a kid? Did you ever play sports growing up as a kid? Did you ever have to go to PE and go outside and be physical?" Uh, with games, kids grow up have we're in an era now where people have grown up playing video games. And in some cases I, you know, play more games than sports when I was a kid. So whenever you think about going to a football game, there's like this feeling of like nostalgia. There's all, there's all these people around it. It's yeah. the same feeling of, man, I played this game when I was a kid or man, I, I remember doing this growing up. This feels great and it's exciting. And I mean, I know there are football, football, Super Bowl watch parties where people will go to and I don't care about football. I don't really know all the rules, but I'll go to a party and I'll watch the game and I'll cheer. For, I'll pick one side and I'll root for them. And it's kind of that same framework, I think. And yeah. with esports, there's also that level of polish or entertainment where uh, the graphics are amazing and they look beautiful. And that that extra layer of imagination where, you know, you go to football, there are different stadiums, you can go to different cities, whereas in games, you could be on any map in any world anywhere and it's just beautiful and imaginative and immersive and even if you don't even understand everything that's going on the commentators are there kind of bringing you along making you feel excited yeah yeah I, i'd be curious just uh facebook and some of these other sites have gotten a fair amount of bad press in the last year around just the idea around kind of people becoming addicted to their devices and how maybe some of these these sites are sort of complicit in that and what they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're leveraging a lot of the same kinds of game mechanics and things like that, 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 that video games and just game designers in general have gotten really good at. Uh, when you're designing an interface um, that is not a game and 
you have sort of the opportunity to leverage similar types of mechanics and and maybe you think that that will that'll be really effective at sort of building a habit loop or whatever or, or kind of tap into sort of a psychological trigger or give them a dopamine hit or whatever how do you think about that and what do you think is sort of um responsible use of those kinds of things when you're designing an interface like you were saying i mean when i'm playing a video game it's a sort of a different modality and the, the whole goal is maybe to get lost a little bit in distraction or whatever. I mean, how, how do you think about it when you're kind of stepping outside of the video game world and you're stepping into, I'm creating either productivity applications or I'm creating other kinds of applications that don't, aren't necessarily sort of games? Um, how, how do you think about that stuff? Yeah, uh, this is a awesome question because from my point of view as a designer, I have this intrinsic motivation to make things to the best of my ability. I want to make things that people want to use and I want to make things that people yeah. love. Yeah. And in order to tap into those emotions, it's sort of in my duty to use those loops in in some way, shape or form at some point. So how do you use them responsibly? I mean, there's one worldview where it's like, yeah, people are going to be addicted and people are going to go out and, and do you know, people are going to succumb to their vices with or without your product. Your product isn't the center of the world. There are other products. If if they're going to be hooked on a feedback loop in my app, uh, am I really going to feel bad about that? Because they can just go and get a different app and do the same thing. But yeah. that's also not that's not ethical necessarily. And that's there's an idea where privacy and and my data and all of that I, it should be easy for me to understand this and this EULA and user license agreement and say, yes, you can have all of my information. And yes, I did clearly understand everything that I'm handing over. Here you go. That was so simple. What a yeah. great experience. Yeah. That's yeah. not how that should be designed. The yeah. way that yeah. you should, that should be a difficult, arduous process. And the fact that it's no process whatsoever, it is a giant wall of text and a button that you click and pass over, right. um, it should not be designed that way. Yeah. But that is not where we are right now with uh, legislation and with what businesses want to do. It's just kind of those, it's just the way it's always been done. And it just needs to be brought into the modern world as we come upon this age of machine learning, uh, data democratization, AI, where our data is now being used in many, many more ways than we ever thought possible when we decided okay, we're going to just have a EULA. They're going to say, yes, here's my information. Here you go. Like yeah. that needs to be visited. So the customer probably um, in a certain sense, it's complicated too, in terms of you ask them what they want. On the one hand, they would say, uh, no, I don't want, you know, I don't, I don't want you to be using my data in all these other ways. But to your point, I mean, you, you make an interface that's better for them because they maybe understand exactly what it is that they're opting into and how it might be used and not used in the future. But it, you're introducing a lot of potential friction. They probably will tell you that they're less happy with the interface. The business will probably tell you that it hurts business results from a conversion perspective, like all of those things. It's like one of those weird circumstances where it's like you as the designer are trying to create an interface that is sort of morally or ethically, maybe not more, but ethically better, <laughs> you yeah. know, but uh, you're, you're going to be running into a lot of resistance, both from the business side, but also probably in a lot of cases from the user side. The customer probably, um, in a certain sense, it's complicated too, in terms of you ask them what they want. On the one hand, they would say, uh, no, I don't want, you know, I don't, I don't want you to be using my data in all these other ways. But to your point, I mean, you, you make an interface 
that's better for them because they maybe understand exactly what it is that they're opting into and how it might be used and not used in the future. But you're introducing a lot of potential friction. They probably will tell you that they're less happy with the interface. The business will probably tell you that it hurts business results from a conversion perspective. Like all of those things, it's like one of those weird circumstances where it's like you as the designer are trying to create an interface that is sort of morally or ethically, maybe not more, but ethically better, <laughs> you yeah. know, but uh, you're, you're going to be running into a lot of resistance, both from the business side, but also probably in a lot of cases from the user side. Um, you know, sort of speaking of, about, you, you mentioned sort of the, the machine learning stuff and, and data science. Has that started to, um, I mean, obviously the Amazon side, they're doing all kinds of stuff with that. Um, is that starting to infiltrate games too? Because I mean, I would imagine it seems like there would be an opportunity to leverage, to learn from how you or to learn from how everyone interacts with our game and make the and, and make the experience kind of progressively better in an iterative sort of way. Is that something that's that anyone's really doing anything with? Or I mean, obviously the chat. It seems like there would be a lot more complicated because you'd have to making changes to a game are probably, it's probably a lot more involved than, than changing a blue button to a red button or whatever. But (laughs) the challenges with, with games is that, and well with games and with machine learning is that the way that it's implemented machine learning, that's a, that's a big long project to embark on. Making a game isn't. And part of what makes games great is that you can quickly develop something that's simple and that's fast and that you can get it to market. So if you want to invest a ton of time in machine learning and putting it into your game, you have to have a lot of money. You have to have a lot of runway. So you don't really see that a ton, but there are big studios that that use it. And there's also what you see more is um, environments which are procedurally generated where every game that I play, so uh, No Man's Sky is famous for this, like all the planets are different. And my copy of No Man's Sky is not the same as your copy of No Man's Sky, but we can still go to the same planet. They just came out with an update. So before, because of how it was built, you weren't able to do a multiplayer experience. Uh, So you were just basically in this big giant universe with all these planets, totally unique, but totally lonely. And you couldn't invite people to your world. Now they just came out with an update where there are planets where you can meet up with and they've kind of solved that. But I don't really know much more about how games or which games are capitalizing it. I do know there are there's always so many improvements. So it's so fast. I would Basically, imagine like some of the auction type games where there's like a marketplace where you earn coin and spend coin. I mean, maybe they're doing some optimization around. Oh, well, mobile. Oh, gosh. OK, actually, I've, I'm thinking of console and PC. Mobile games absolutely will learn. I know that Candy Crush is infamous for they know the times in which you play and that is when they will serve you the notification that's not necessarily <laughs> yeah. machine learning that's just right right that's just smart notifications yeah right 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 i know you're you said you you know you, you jumped over to kind of the gaming side but is there anything else kind of on the you know you mentioned on the, on the gardener hype cycle that's kind of ascending that that you were super interested in personally well i mean uh, machine learning and ai i think for me as a designer is what i want to see get its legs under it, um, selfishly because I want better design tools. Uh, Autodesk has a very amazing tool where it will take in, so let's say I I saw this um, demo uh, at a conference a couple months ago where I want to design a motorcycle 
and I want it to be optimized for speed, not durability. And these are the materials that I want to use. Oh, I saw this. Here are all of my constraints that I have to work with. Now I want you to recommend things like what are all the ways that I could build this? And now let me just curate and choose how I build this because it's yeah. basically just a much faster design process. Uh, and I want that for, uh, you know, for myself. Are you in the camp that says that you can't automate creativity? Um, or are you in the camp that says, you know, this is going to take my, my job away from me in 10 years or whatever? Well, I, I'm definitely in the camp where it's like you can't automate creativity because the way that the limitations that I've seen with machine learning and recommendations. So creativity comes from the juxtaposition of two opposing unrelated ideas that when you put them together, create something remarkable. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the way that machine learning works is it shows you all of these things that are all related to each other. So I want to make a tree. Here are all the trees I can make. I want to make a branch. OK, well, these types of trees have these types of branches. So let me recommend this to you. So it puts you down this very narrow scope of what's possible. Yeah. It does it very quickly, but it doesn't juxtapose anything new or interesting or unique or creative to you. And I think that that is the role of the human. Because in this demo that I saw, it had designed a bicycle. And when asked this question of like, okay, but that bicycle is ugly. Make me one that I actually want to ride. Like, yeah. yes, this is a bicycle that is technically superior in every way, but it's ugly and I'm not going to ride it. So there's yeah. always going to be that layer of what people want is is always going to be emotional. Yeah. It's going to be some layer of that in I, in your design process. I don't know if you if you've been following like on the enterprise side of things, um, there's like a big movement towards what they're calling like low code um, interfaces. And from an IT perspective, it makes a lot of sense because you know you're like I have this database. Why do I have to kind of code? You know, why do I have to either job it out or hire a bunch of expensive resources to kind of do some simple connections between tables and present that in a view or whatever. And so like mm -hmm. Salesforce is making big investments and all that kind of thing. But it's a similar sort of thing where what you're doing is you're ending up, you're creating, you're using a library of kind of pre-made widgets and then you're, you're serving up a bunch of apps that were really fast to build, but that your team doesn't really, really actually want to use. So, you know, getting back to your kind of remarkable, you know, point or even just delightful, right? Like an experience that I want to enjoy using. Um, a lot of these tools are really speeding up how quickly I can make something viable, but they're not necessarily making it something that anybody's going to want to actually interact with, um, with any sort of regularity. That's an interesting cool. idea. It definitely shifts the perspective of when do I invest in design? What type of design do I invest in? what can I figure out on my own about my own customers by doing kind of a fast crappy app and then bring to a designer to say, okay, this is what I know. Please help. Yeah. <laughs> Please yeah, you get better. Yeah, definitely. My guest today was Chris Durbin from Twitch and Amazon. Be sure to check out the show notes at digintent.com slash podcast. And that wraps up another episode of The Disruptors. For more information on how we can help transform your business with technology, visit us at digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, would love a quick review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening.